Well, all right. Good morning, Connection Church. I hope you are excited to be here. I'm excited. Uh, there's a lot of cool stuff going on at our church right now, including uh, moving towards building our permanent facility. We're almost there. Thank you for your continued uh, generosity towards that. Uh, it's going to be very exciting to have our own place uh, where we can uh, meet and, and uh, send people out from, and we are super excited about that. Um, today is an exciting day uh, because we are teaching 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, this is a topic that uh, is probably very intriguing to a lot of us in this room. Uh, I'm excited to teach it. I've actually never taught this passage before. Um, and so, But I will say, if you have a child in the room uh, and they are fifth grade and under, uh, I would suggest and recommend going to check out our uh, Connection Kids ministry. It's an incredible ministry. Uh, and so as I get ready to pray before we start this passage, uh, definitely uh, check that out, and uh, I'll give you that opportunity. So let's pray together. Father, we love you. Uh, God, we're so excited uh, to be here. God, to worship together as a family. God, to study your word together. Uh, God, to dig into maybe uh, a topic that Many times uh, we don't talk about it church, but God, it's in your word, and God, you want to shape our view of it. And so, Lord, I pray this morning, uh, God, that you would equip us, and God, that you would uh, help us believe your word and not what culture around us tells us. And uh, Father, I pray that we be a church that reflects you in every area of our lives, including this one. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 7, let me catch you up on the context if you have not been here. Uh, so 1 Corinthians has been a book written in response to uh, uh, Chloe's household uh, came to Paul, who the Apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament, and basically told them that in Corinth there were a lot of divisions going on. And so Paul spent the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians addressing these divisions uh, and then after that, in 5 and 6, he addressed some of the sin that was going on, sexual immorality, uh, lawsuits going on among believers and conflicts and all this. And now uh, he is starting to address some questions uh, that he received from somewhere, right? So nobody uh, tells us, it's not in the Bible, where these questions came from. You would assume that somebody wrote to Paul and began to ask him some questions about uh, some specific topics. And as we walk through the next few chapters of Corinthians, uh, we're going to see what those topics are. And so today, in chapter 7, uh, what he's addressing is marriage, divorce, singleness, sex, remarriage, uh, celibacy, uh, all of these things happen. And then in chapters 8 through 11, uh, he's going to begin to address personal liberties. Uh, they were asking about uh, freedom to go and do this or that. If uh, you know, we want to go down to the local cheeseburger joint and this beef has been sacrificed to an idol down the street and they got the beef there. Can we eat the beef? And so just kind of random liberty questions about idolatry and all that that were going on in Corinth. Uh, and then he's going to jump into chapters 11 through 14 will be about uh, order in worship, like spiritual gifts and how uh, we as a church family practice those together uh, for the building up of, of the body. And then uh, chapter 15 uh, apparently, they asked him about the resurrection and kind of a theological uh, question about what will our bodies be like in the resurrection. And so uh, today, we're going to jump into chapter 7. And so if you have your Bibles, I hope you're there. And I want to preface it by saying uh, the way I, I think it's best to look at this chapter is to see that Paul is addressing three different types of people and he's, he's really given them some practical advice, very specific to 
whatever circumstance that they're in. And so those three types of people are Christians that are married to other Christians. So if you're in the room and you'd say, I'm a Christian, I believe in Christ, and my spouse believes in Christ, then you guys would be a Christian marriage. Uh, that can get complicated where we live because here everybody is a Christian. Uh, and so if you're married uh, to a spouse and, and they're not uh, engaged in their relationship with God or they're not uh, coming with you to church or pursuing Jesus uh, in, in an individual relationship, then they may would go into the second category as well as uh, some others. The second category is a Christian that's married to an unbeliever, uh, and he gives us kind of two scenarios with that. One Christian would be married to an unbeliever that is willing to stay with them even though they're a Christian, and he gives advice there. And then the next is a Christian uh, that marries an unbeliever. Maybe they get saved, and then the unbeliever uh, takes off and says, I don't want to be married to you anymore. He speaks into that. And then he also hits on unmarried Christians, right? So this would be a person that's a Christian, that's single, uh, maybe formerly married, maybe you've been widowed, uh, any, any way that you've become uh, single. So that's kind of where we're at. That's what he's addressing. I'll try to point it out as we go. Uh, so I hope you have your Bibles, and uh, we'll start in verse 1. So Paul says, now for the matters you wrote about, that's how we know that they wrote to him asking these questions. He says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So we, we know from Genesis chapter two, that sounds like the same passage that says, it's not good for man to be alone, so I've created a helper suitable for him. But here he's saying the opposite. It's good to be single, but then in Genesis he says it's good to be married. So which one? Both. Singleness is a gift and it's good. Marriage is a gift and it's good. Paul's not arguing uh, the other way, but he's addressing sexual immorality in uh, Corinth. And so verse 2, he says, But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. And the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, likewise the wife uh, to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Verse 5, do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and fasting. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not, a, not as a command. So what we see is, again, in Corinth, there's sexual immorality going on. That's anything outside of sex going on inside the covenant of marriage. So people were sleeping with prostitutes. They were uh, just basically sleeping with people that weren't their wife. And so Paul addresses and says, hey, guys, you need to choose either one life or the other. You need to get married and sleep with your wife or you need to choose the gift of singleness and you need to, to, to remain single and celibate and not sleep around because it doesn't honor God. And so he's, he's addressing it in that, that way. And then he goes on, verse 7. He says, I wish that all, were, all of you were as I am, which we know Paul was single, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has a gift, another has that. So both marriage and singleness are a gift from God. Both the Christian faith uh, values singleness and marriage equally. Like they are both really, really good. So if you are single and the church has made you feel like you're less than or something's wrong with you, that's wrong. That's not in uh, the Bible. 
uh, it, is, it is a gift from God, and it's important. Verse 8, he says, now to the unmarried and the widows. So he's switching from married Christians to now unmarried uh, and the widows. And single could probably be in this too. He says, or actually they couldn't. So married and unmarried and widows. It says, I say, uh, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, speaking sexually, they should marry, for it is better to marry than burn with passion. Verse 10, to the married, he's bouncing back to the married. I give this command, not I, but the Lord, right? So uh, he's gonna say some interesting things. Here he says, not I, but the Lord. And if you bounce down, he says, I, but not the Lord. And it can almost make it seem like him and the Lord have different opinions or he's not speaking with the authority of God, but that's not what he's saying. He's basically addressing when he says, not I, but the Lord, He's bouncing back to something that Jesus has already taught. And then when he says, not the Lord, but I, he's saying, I'm writing something that Jesus didn't hit on. Both of them are authoritative, so we can accept them and the whole Bible as the word of God. Not that you had that question, but I wanted to address it as we were moving because it's kind of confusing. Uh, so he says, a wife must not separate from her husband. To the married, I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. We know that Jesus taught about divorce in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew 19. And for two Christians to divorce is disobedient to God. That's what Jesus taught. Verse 11. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Verse 12. To the rest, I say this. I, not the Lord. Jesus obviously didn't cover this previously, so this is new information to us. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer, so here's our next category, a Christian that married a non-believer, and she is willing to live with him, then he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, then she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through the wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, that can be kind of confusing. Is, is the Bible saying that if one spouse is saved and the other is not, that the unsaved is saved through uh, this other person being saved? No, like we know salvation is an individual thing. So he's using that word sanctified and he's using it for the definition, which is to be set apart. And so when an unbeliever or when a believer is married to an unbeliever, what Paul is saying is that they have been set apart in a special marriage where they are really, really close to a person who has the spirit of God and have a really, really good opportunity to see Jesus up close and personal. And so he wants uh, if we're a believer and we're married to a non-believer and they're willing to stay with us, to stay there for the sake of the mission, to show them Christ so that in hopes that they'll get saved and become a Christian. That's what Paul wants. He goes on, verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, then let it be so. The brother or the sister, the Christian, is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So if the unbeliever chooses to leave, uh, then, then God says that breaks the covenant of marriage and the, and the person is now free uh, to remarry. And then he goes on to prove the point about 
that sanctified, not meaning saved. He says, he asked those questions. Uh, how do you know, wife, whether you, you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? He's saying, you, as a believer in a relationship with an unbeliever, like, you can't save your husband or your spouse. Like, only God can do that. And we don't know if that's going to happen or not. Verse 17, nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. He's basically saying, Corinthians, whatever situation you're in, live for God, be faithful. And he goes on to say, this is the rule that I lay down in all the churches. Verse 18, was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Now, I'm not getting into circumcision, but that's a, basically he's making a reference to a Jewish person would be circumcised in the Old Testament, and then uh, a Gentile or a non-Jewish person wouldn't. And so he's saying when you become a Christian and you are a Gentile, you don't have to become a Jew. And when you were, if you are a Jew, you don't have to become a Gentile. And then he goes on to make his point. Because circumcision or your relationship status is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. That's what Paul's concerned with, is that we would keep the commands of God in whatever situation that we're in. Verse 20, each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them, right? All right, that's our passage. So there's a lot in there, and I understand there's a lot of people in this room that come from a lot of different situations when it comes to marriage, singleness, sex, divorce, all kinds of experiences through this room. And so my goal for today is that you guys would clearly see what the Bible teaches when it comes to marriage, divorce, singleness, celibacy, uh, all of these things, and walk away here knowing how to honor God in whatever situation that you are in. And so here's what, how I wanna do it. I wanna separate the room into three categories of people. The first are Christians that are married to other Christians. So if you're in that category, I'm gonna hit you first. And then secondly, Christians that are married to unbelievers, whether that's married to a nominal Christian who doesn't really live out their faith or whether they're a, uh, they say that they're not a believer. And then the third category would be unmarried Christians, a person that is single, widowed, formerly married, where, however you found yourself in that category, I wanna address them all. So y'all ready? All right, I'm ready, are y'all ready? Let's go, here we go. All right, so the first category is Christians married to Christians. Let me read the passage one more time so you can uh, put yourself here. Verse one, now getting down to the questions that you asked in your letter to me, I'm reading from uh, the message version of this, which is a paraphrase, which I feel like is a little bit easier uh, to understand, and I would not suggest that the message be your uh, normal Bible because it is a paraphrase. It's not like an accurate translation, but it is here where he gives his, his uh, paraphrase of what this passage says. Listen, he says, now getting down to the questions you asked in your letter to me, first, is it a good thing to have sexual relations? Certainly, but only within a certain context. It's good for a man to have a wife and for a woman to have a husband. Sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. The marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife and the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. 
Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out. Abstaining from sex is permissible for a period of time if you both agree to it and if it's for the purposes of prayer and fasting, but only for such times. Then come back together again because Satan has an ingenious way of tempting us when we least expect it. I'm not, understand, commanding these periods of abstinence. I'm only providing my best counsel if you should use to choose them. Verse 7, sometimes I wish everyone were single like me. Simpler, a simpler life in many ways. But celibacy is not for everyone any more than marriage is. God gives the gift of the single life to some and the gift of the married life to others. So again, in this passage is probably where the Bible teaches us about sex inside of marriage more than anywhere else. And so if you're looking for a, a biblical view of what that should look like, you came on the right day. If you're here and this is your first time, we don't talk about sex every Sunday, um, and, and, but we're walking through and this is in God's word and it's good and we're gonna learn from it. So here we go. The first thing for a Christian that's married to another Christian is this, letter A. In your marriage, sex is important. And this passage teaches us a lot about sex in marriage. It teaches us that sex is a good thing. It is a gift from God when it is inside the covenant of marriage. It is a gift uh, to enjoy. It is a, a tool to fight Satan and, and to fight sin in our lives, specifically sexual sin. Uh, it is a tool to build intimacy and oneness with one another, uh, which is important for us to understand. It is good. It is also good because it produces children, which are spiritual uh, disciples that we can make and, and multiply in. And so we call this covenant sex which is God's design for sex. Any kind of sex outside of this covenant of marriage is bad sex, and it's not good. It's sinful, uh, and, and it's not of uh, God. And so we need to understand that outside of marriage, it's incredibly damaging. Sex is damaging. It's mentally, emotionally, physically damaging. It's bad. It's sinful. It's destructive. And it may not feel that way right now, but I'm telling you, in the long run, it is not God's design and all sin leads to death and destruction, and it will. Sex is meant to be a way to say to another person, I belong completely and exclusively to you until death do us part. And that's how God designed it uh, to work. And so here, Paul really begins to teach us about now that we understand his God's design for sex, which is only inside the covenant of marriage, how does it begin to practically work out within uh, marriage? This is a great Great thing for us to understand uh, practically because I didn't really have any teaching on this when I went into my marriage. Um, so here we go. Verse three, Paul teaches us uh, that sex is a responsibility in marriage. That's literally the word he uses, uh, a duty in some uh, translations. And I think he teaches it that way because uh, it, it's supposed to be understood uh, for what it is. It is our responsibility as a spouse to serve our spouse sexually. Like that's how he wants us uh, to see it. When we get married, we literally give the authority of our bodies over to our spouse. Uh, notice this is a mutual thing. So it's not like only the guy uh, gets the authority of the woman's body. No, the woman gets the authority of uh, the man's body. And this is to serve them and to 
uh, help them overcome sexual temptation and sexual immorality, which is an interesting way to think about it. So in Christian marriage, unlike the world, sex was never intended to be a weapon to fight each other, uh, but a tool to build up a healthy marriage with, right? And so in, in a lot of the world's view, sex is usually a reward, and then withholding sex is usually a punishment uh, for, for, for bad behavior. And that's kind of how our view of it goes. God never intended sex to be used to manipulate each other inside the covenant of marriage, but rather he designed it to be a gift to be mutually enjoyed, a way to serve, a way to show affection toward one another, an expression of, of kindness and goodwill uh, towards each other, not some manipulative game that you play in marriage. So the big question is, who decides when you have sex in marriage? All right, it's a great question, right? Thanks for asking that. Um, Paul makes a couple of things clear in this. Um, the first thing that he makes clear is, number one, it's a mutual decision. It is something that you need to talk about. Like if you are married and you're not talking about sex, you should talk about it. Um, and he wants us to make this decision with a few things in mind. The first is that Paul wants and teaches that sex should be frequent inside of the marriage covenant. How do I know that? Well, he makes the statement about prayer and fasting. And he says, if you want to uh, withhold or abstain from sex, do it for the cause of spiritual uh, things, which are prayer and fasting. Well, if you know anything about prayer and fasting, you don't prayer and fast for a year. You die if you do that, right? So uh, prayer and fasting is usually a one day, three day, seven day. If you're Jesus, uh, 40 days, but most of us aren't. So uh, it's a short-term thing. And so we know that Paul is, is indicating that sex should be frequent. Number three, Paul also says that neither, should, uh, neither spouse should feel deprived. And so that's a big statement. You say, well, daggone, Billy, uh, he wants to have sex 24-7. And I would say back, you married him, right? And so you are in that on your own. Number four, uh, and he also reminds us that to keep our mind on the fact that there is an enemy. And, and we need to understand that one of the ways that Satan seeks to destroy marriage is through sexual immorality. And that is probably the predominant way that he tries to get inside of your marriage. And so you and your spouse need to be having conversations about sexual temptation and needs and desires and fulfillment so that you guys can remain pure and honor God uh, in that. Help each other. That's what God gave you a spouse to do is to help uh, one another. So the bottom line with sex in marriage is this. One, it's important. Two, it is a huge sign of health in marriage. I don't have time to focus in on this, but if you aren't having sex with your spouse, then that means somewhere along the line you're not connected to uh, one another. You're not uh, connecting emotionally, physically, uh, just, just on the same page. And there's probably some underlying issues that need to be uh, resolved in that. Thirdly, you need to talk to your spouse about their needs. Uh, help each other remain pure uh, for the Lord. Uh, next, don't be selfish. Like sex is an opportunity to serve uh, one another. Uh, marriage is already hard enough with other issues. Sex should not have to be that difficult. Uh, it, it, it's made to be enjoyed, so enjoy it. it it's, a, it's a big deal. So here's a couple questions to ask for my married couples. One, have you seen sex as an opportunity to serve your spouse? Like, is that the way you view uh, sex, or is it all about you? 
Secondly, is helping your spouse overcome sexual sin even on your radar. Like, have you even thought about the fact that God gave you one another to help uh, with that? Are you having conversations about that? Thirdly, are you having sex frequently in your marriage? If not, why not? What does uh, your sex life reveal about the health of your marriage? Secondly, in your marriage, your relationship with God is the most important relationship, right? So did you notice what he said in verse five? Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. That is a bold statement. Is there anyone in here that, that's married that's ever intentionally fasted from sex for the sake of prayer and spiritual purpose? If you have, you are more spiritual than me. That never crossed my mind. Has it ever crossed my mind until I read uh, this passage uh, to preach it? But what I think Paul is showing is that sex is important, but it's not the most important part of marriage. If you're building the foundation of your relationship uh, marriage-wise on sex, it's built on the wrong foundation. There's something more important, and that is a relationship with God. That's what prayer and fasting does is connects you uh, to God, and that's important to understand is that your relationship with God is the foundation of a healthy marriage. Write that down. The foundation of a healthy marriage is a healthy relationship with God, period. Why? Because without a healthy relationship with God, we can't fulfill God's purpose for marriage, which bounces back to Ephesians 5. What is God's purpose for marriage? Well, God's purpose for marriage, is it happiness? Uh, it may bring happiness, but that's not the, the overall purpose. What is it? It's to reflect Jesus to other people. Like it's a missional thing. And so that's why marriage won't be in heaven is because it's a temporary gift uh, to better reveal Christ to people around us. And so when we marry another person, God wants it to be a Christian so that as we love and serve one another unconditionally, it reflects God's love for us, his church, to the world around us. And so if we're not in a healthy relationship with God, we can't love and serve our spouse in such a way that it reflects Jesus to the world around us. And so we best reflect him when our relationship with God is healthy. So here's the question. Is your relationship with God healthy? Like, what does your marriage show about the health of your relationship with God? It's a really cool idea that God uses marriage to show us where we are spiritually. Like, if your spouse is constantly getting on your nerves, it's usually a great indicator uh, that, he, <laughs> that you're not where you need to be spiritually you know, because you're, you're called to love and serve them uh, unconditionally. So is your relationship with God healthy? Are you growing? Are you taking next steps? Are you spending time with God consistently in his word, praying? Are you walking in community? Are you engaged in God's mission? Do you even have a relationship uh, with God? Because nothing will reveal that more than, than putting you under a roof with another sinner that is selfish and that wants their way, and you want your way, and you just begin to clash back and forth. God uses marriage to show us our need for him and our need for his spirit to live in us, so don't miss that. The third thing I wanna encourage married couples with is this. In your marriage, take divorce off the table. I think Paul wants us to be clear about that. Jesus wants us to be clear about that, is that divorce should not be something that you throw around. It should be off the table. Verse 10. 
to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. The Lord's already said it. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. He's referring back to these two teachings that Jesus said to us in Matthew 5, 31 and 32, which he says clearly, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give a certificate of divorce. Now, you've probably heard that term if you know anything about the Bible. That's a reference back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. I won't make you go there. But Moses gave people a certificate of divorce but the reason he gave it was not because it was God's design or God's will. It was because uh, th there was hardness of heart going on, and he basically gave it to them and permitted them uh, to uh, divorce because of their hardness of heart, which is what Jesus is about uh, to say. He says, but I tell you, this is Jesus talking, that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then he goes on in Matthew 19, which is his other teaching on divorce. Matthew 19, 1 through 10. Jesus says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Verse 2, large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Verse 3, some Pharisees came to him to test him. So we know their motivations are to test Jesus. They're not good. And here's what they asked. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So they're trying to trick Jesus and basically say, is it lawful uh, for me to dump my wife for, for snoring too loud or for watching TV too loud or for spending too much money? Is it lawful for me to walk away from her? What does Jesus say? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they've become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man or no one separate. And they, why then, uh, this is, so they feel like they've got Jesus trapped here because they're going back to Deuteronomy and they're about to throw the Moses thing in front of him. Verse seven, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Like, boom, Jesus, what you got for that, man? They think they've got him. Here's a good idea. Don't argue with Jesus. Verse 8, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, which is one of the clauses in divorce that sexual immorality breaks the covenant of marriage and marries another woman commits adultery and the disciples said to him if this is the situation between a husband and wife then it is better not to marry so Jesus says the primary cause of divorce is hardness of hearts well what is hardness of hearts well our hearts are hardened towards God when we're either walking in unrepentant sin or when we're lost like we don't care about the things of God when we're walking in sin or when we're lost. The things of God, that's what the Bible teaches is a hardened heart. And so what Jesus wants us to know is that it is a spiritual impossibility for two people to love Jesus and get divorced. 
Like when, when two people love God and are pursuing him, their hearts are softened. Their hearts are like the gospel, forgiveness, kindness, reconciliation. All of those things begin uh, to do it. Now, when one spouse is not pursuing God and the other spouse is, that's a different story. But when two people are focused on the Lord, marriage uh, should not end in divorce. Paul wants us to take it off the table. So the reason we get divorced is usually not because we fall out of love with our spouse. It's because we fall out of obedience to Jesus. And so we need to understand that that is what the Bible teaches. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and pretend that I understand every person's exact situation in this room because I know there's different stories and different experiences all over this room. And listen to me, if you are in an abusive situation, you need to get out now. Like, come talk to me now. Like, we want to help you as a church. If you're scared to talk to me, talk to somebody you're not scared to talk to and tell them to come talk to me. You need help to get out of that situation, but God will want you out of that immediately. If you've been divorced, I want you to hear me clearly, you are not chopped liver. You're not behind the, beyond the grace of God. That is not the impardonable sin. Like, God's grace is sufficient for you. You don't need to let that hang over your head. The cross is sufficient to forgive you for that and to help you move forward. But you, if you are a Christian in this room and you are in the midst of a difficult marriage and you're thinking about divorce, Jesus himself would tell you, do not do it. It's not worth it. The grass is not greener on the other side. The consequences of the divorce are difficult. And you may not see them now, but I promise you on the other side, they are there. And listen to me, nobody in this room married the right person. You get what I'm saying? Like, like this myth that eHarmony puts in your head that there's this perfect person and they eat what you eat, uh, they sleep just like you sleep, uh, that they, they like to do the same things that you do. If you've bought into that, and listen, maybe you did find like the one person in your life, y'all like the same things, y'all just uh, have a, a great relationship. Well, granted to you, but uh, we're all sinners in the room. And sinful people cause issues. And so at some point, if you haven't been through a difficulty in your marriage, you will be. And most of the people in this room will tell you marriage is difficult because when you throw two sinners under one roof and say, hey, you guys be one, make decisions together, uh, you know, raise kids together, conflict is going to happen and it's going to get difficult. But Jesus wants us to take divorce off the table and part of us growing and being sanctified and becoming more like Christ is learning to get along and learning to be unified together with someone that maybe disagrees with us from time to time. And I know it's hard, and I don't know your exact situation, but I can tell you God is greater, and God can do a work in your marriage. And there's testimonies all over this room that I could bring up here one by one that could show you they thought they were done, and now look at God and what he's done. And so if you're in that situation, don't be ashamed to ask for help. Like every person in this room that has been married at times in their marriage has needed help. Actually, we all need help all the time. And so we need to be humble enough to ask for help. And so God, I just wanna encourage you today uh, to take divorce off the table. I promise you it's worth it. It's worth it because of Jesus. It's worth it because of your family. It's worth it because of your kids. I don't need to stand up here and tell you the stats of the effects that divorce has on children. And it's worth it for the testimony of God's grace on the other side of the healing that God wants to do in you and in your spouse. 
All right, so that's all I got for my married Christians. Uh, Y'all can can bow, go to sleep. Uh, The next group is my Christians married to unbelievers. So listen to Paul, verse 12. He says, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, uh, he's addressing a situation that Jesus didn't, so here's what his teaching is. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, then he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, then let it be so. The brother or sister, the Christian, is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule that I lay down in all of the churches. So Paul points us to two situations, a believer married to a non-believer, and the non-believer is willing to stay. And then the second situation is a believer who is married to a non-believer, and the non-believer walks out and says, I'm not willing to be married Uh, to you. And so that can look totally different in a lot of ways. Maybe you got married, you got saved after salvation, you got saved after you were married. They don't really want anything to do with it. They don't like you anymore because your whole life has changed. Or maybe you got saved after you were married and they're willing to stay with you and and just kind of, you know, uh, do life with you and they love you and they want to be there with you. So let's let's look at these situations. Second situation first, believer who is married to a non-believer that leaves. If your spouse leaves you and divorces you, They've killed the covenant and you are free to remarry, is what the Bible teaches. Based on that teaching of Jesus and Paul, there are two things that kill the covenant of marriage. One is adultery and two is abandonment by an unbeliever. So when they walk out on you or they commit adultery and join themselves to another person, uh, they, have, they have broken the covenant of marriage. And, and I would go on to say, based on Paul and Jesus's logic, I would argue for a third uh, exception, which would be when a spouse is doing something that makes them unable to live with and putting you and the kids in danger. Maybe uh, an illegal activity of some kind or maybe an abusive situation. But I would say in that case, you need to come and talk to me or you need to go to a a biblical counselor and, and let someone walk with you through that situation, but you need to get out. Maybe it's a separation, maybe it's divorce, I don't know, but we can walk through that uh, together. And so let me be clear, I'm not talking about if somebody looks at you wrong or you don't like them or they're annoying, or I'm talking about like serious situations that could cause harm or danger to you or your family. The next thing is, 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 uh, is a situation two, which is when a believer is married uh, to a non-believer who is willing to stay. So this one is a different situation. Paul says to stay married to this person and be a faithful witness for Christ. And that sounds easy, but I know a lot of people that are in this situation and there may not be a more heartbreaking and hard place to remain faithful than in a marriage with an unbeliever. This is why if you're single, the choice you make on who you marry the first thing you need to be worried about is, is they, are they a Christian or not? Because that is what creates a healthy marriage 
And so you need to be concerned with that. And I'm sure if you're in this room and they're in this circumstance, they would love to tell you about the difficulty of it. And so if you're here and you're married to an unbeliever and they stay and they're in your household, I want to encourage you with three things. The first is this, rest in Christ. Rest in Christ. I want you to listen to me clearly. Your fulfillment and satisfaction is not found in a saved husband or a saved wife. Your fulfillment is found in Jesus. And you need to understand that and you need to feast on Christ, you need to press into Christ and you need to allow this situation to fuel a dependency on Jesus like, like it never has before in your life because it is a difficult situation. The second thing I would encourage you with is be a tool of God's grace. God desires to use you to show you, uh, to show your lost spouse Jesus. Paul even says that they are sanctified because they are married to you, not meaning that they're saved, but that they are set apart to get a front row seat to a person that has a relationship with God and a person that is filled with the Holy Spirit. Like what better way for a person to see Jesus than to be married, a lost person to be married to a believer and see the, the changed life happen in that. I mean, Tony Evans, I don't know if you know who that is, but his dad's story, his mom and dad, that's their story. His dad got saved and his mom basically got to the point where she looked at him and said, I don't know what happened to you, but I want it. And boom, she gets saved. And now Tony Evans, one of the greatest preachers of all times, is literally preaching the Bible because of his mom and dad, this situation. And so it's, it's a really cool piece. But here's the thing. The Bible never guarantees that they're going to get saved. And so this is why we don't condone missionary dating, which I'll talk about in a minute, where you're dating lost people to get them saved. First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Peter addresses this. And so if you're in this situation, Peter addresses a wife, but you can switch it to be a husband. He says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and the reverence of your life. You need to know that God desires to use you to win over your spouse to the kingdom of God by the way that you live, by the way that you talk, by the way that you show reverence to God in every area of your life. He wants to use you as a tool of his grace to save your husband or your wife. And then the last thing I'd encourage you with is to trust God to work. And this one may be the most difficult or the hardest one to believe. I wish I could promise you that your husband or your lost wife was gonna get saved, but I cannot promise you that, but what I do know is that we have a God that's willing and that a spouse's salvation is not on you. And so many times when I find a wife or a husband in this situation, they feel like if they can just do something right or do this or that their husband's gonna get saved or if they messed up then, then, and sinned one time, then, then that's why their husband is not saved. But I want you to hear me clearly, their salvation is not on you. God and God alone can save a person. And so that pressure needs to be off your back. Your responsibility is to pray, is to love, is to serve and reflect Jesus to them in the best way that you possibly can. And together, we will trust the promises of God in James 5, that the prayer of a righteous man and woman are powerful and effective. 1 Timothy 2, 4, that God desires to save all people and bring them into the knowledge of the truth. That Romans 8, 28, that God is working all things out for those that are called according to his purposes. And when you struggle to believe that, listen to me, 
You need to be walking in community where someone can remind you and someone can pray for you and someone can walk this thing out with you. Even more than everybody else in this room, if you're in this situation, community is huge. You need to join a connect group today and you need to surround yourself with people that can love you and walk with you through this situation. The third thing I would say uh, to the third category of people, uh, so not the third thing I would say, this is a new category of people. So we've handled Christians that married Christians, Christians that married non-believers, now unmarried Christians. So if you're in the room, you'd say, I'm single, uh, my husband uh, left me, I've been widowed, he died or she died, or you've been formally married, whatever situation you're in, here's what Paul would say, verse eight. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, then they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so Paul says, if you can stay unmarried, stay unmarried. But if you're burning with passion, then it's okay for you to remarry. Verse 17, nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them. Just as God has called them, this is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised because circumcision is nothing whether you're single or you're in a relationship is nothing. What matters is keeping the commands of God is what counts. And each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. So listen up, unmarried Christians. The first thing I want you to know is that singleness is a gift. It is a gift from God. Christianity has an incredibly high view of both marriage and singleness. I know we live in a culture that is obsessed with marriage, like it's the goal for everybody's life, and if you don't get married, something is wrong with you, or something has gone wrong in your life, which is interesting because literally the biggest two heroes of the Christian faith, Jesus and Paul, were single, right? So it doesn't really make sense to, for the church to feel that way, and so I know you've been at a wedding before, and they walk up and they say, you're next. I know he's coming or she's coming. But listen to me, you don't need a man or a woman to fulfill you. Like Jesus is what your soul needs. The deepest desires of your heart can be found and satisfied in Christ and Christ alone. Listen to me, romance and marriage will never satisfy the deepest needs of your soul. Lonely, insecure, bored, unhappy single people become lonely, insecure, bored, unhappy, married people. So if you find yourself lonely and insecure and bored and unhappy, it's not a man or a woman that's gonna make that different. It's Jesus Christ. Like look to him, find your fulfillment in him because if you're putting that pressure on a man or a woman, you've already set yourself up for your marriage to fail. We have to look to Christ. It's important that we understand singleness is a gift from God and it frees us up for the mission of God. So don't waste your singleness. Literally go, I mean, I think about before Kate and I got married, I, man, the capacity for me to disciple people and to serve and to go on mission trips and to, to lead small groups, I didn't, have, I didn't have a wife and kids that I had to be at home at a certain time and help the routine and all these different things. I literally could devote my life to the mission 24 seven. 
And this is what Paul says. There's no way Paul could have been married and had kids and did the things that he did for the kingdom of God. And I'm not saying it's wrong to have that. I, I love my wife and I love my family, but it, 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 it is it does divide my devotion as we'll learn in the second half of chapter seven. And so if you're here and you're single, devote your life to the mission of God because you can and you are capable of doing that. Serve and, 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 and disciple people and give your life to the mission in a way that you won't be able to. The second thing for my unmarried Christians is this. If you choose to date, hear me clearly, date to marry. Don't just casually date whoever. Date a person, number one, that's a Christian. Like that's your first criteria. Does he love Jesus? And not does he love Jesus, but do his friends love Jesus? Are you embarrassed to bring him to meet your parents or to, to meet me? Use that as a test. Like if you were embarrassed to introduce, me, uh, introduce him to me, then he's probably not the guy. And so you need to find someone who is a candidate uh, for, for marriage. Don't get involved with a non-believer because once you get involved with a non-believer, then you begin to fall in love with a non-believer. And once you fall in love with a non-believer, it's harder to be obedient to God because obedience would be to walk away from them right now. And so do not even start down that road. The second part of, of date to marry is don't settle. Outside of salvation, there is not a bigger decision that you will make in life. If you decide to get married, who you decide to get married to is a huge decision. And the fact that they love God, is it a person that you want to do life with? Is it a person that you want to raise kids up to love God with? Is it a person that's going to lead you spiritually and encourage you to be a better disciple of Jesus? If it's not, do not settle. And I know you say, Billy, I'm 40, I'm 35, man, I'm just trying to get what I can find. You know, I got one buddy, he hasn't been married, he's like, I'm just waiting on the first row of divorced girls to come loose. I'm like, hold on. <laughs> Wait, what? You can't even say that. But that's not the attitude. The attitude is serve God. And as you devote your life to the mission of God, you look to your right and you look to your left, and whoever that female or that man is that's serving God, that's a perfect candidate for you to settle down with because they're as devoted to the mission as you are. So quit trying to find the right person and become the right person is what God wants you to do. Control what you can control. The last thing I would say is to wait until you're married. If you're in here and you're a Christian that's not married, Sex is not something to play around with. And the sad reality is if you're in here and you're a high school student or a middle school student, you've already been exposed to more than probably most of the adults in this room as a middle schooler because of Facebook and because of these things. And I want you to understand and I want you to hear me clearly. Sex is not something to play around with. Pornography is not something to play around with. It may seem fun and seem cool, but the consequences of it are devastating. They're devastating to your life. They're devastating to your future relationship, if that's in God's plan for your life. It, it, it will destroy your life. So don't flirt with it, Paul says. Don't try to fight it. He says, flee from it. Literally flee, run as fast as you can. Get yourself out of the situation. If it's a phone, throw the phone against the wall and run. Maybe if your parents give it back to them and then run but you see what I'm saying, flee. 
from sexual immorality. And the question, if you're in a dating relationship that you need to be asking is not how far is too far sexually. It's how can we honor God in this relationship? And if the person you're dating is not willing to have that conversation and then take steps to do that, then you need to get out of the relationship. Because if they're not willing to be faithful now, they will not be willing to be faithful later. And you need to understand that and take that seriously. If a man is not willing to commit his life to you, then he doesn't deserve you. And if he says, listen, uh, or, or she says, if we can't have sex, then I, I'm out. Then you need to understand that's not your person. It's not your person. You should not have to answer that question before marriage. So here's how I wanna close. I know I hit a ton of different things right there, but that's the Bible. Listen, Paul's talking about a hundred different things. I don't know where you came into the room today. I don't know what situation you're in. I don't know how this message landed on you. Maybe you're here and, and, and you're encouraged. You've got some, some advice and some tips and some godly counsel for your marriage and you got some steps to take. I'd say, praise God, take those steps. Maybe you're here and anytime marriage or divorce comes up, you just feel shame and guilt, maybe from a past mistake. And here's what I tell you, God's grace is present. Like it's sufficient. Like anybody that's beat you over the head because of something you've done in the past doesn't understand the gospel. Because God didn't come to condemn, he came to save. And so if you're here this morning, I'd say, run to Jesus, run to him. He wants to help. The cross is sufficient to not only forgive us for the sins that we've done, but also move us forward past them. And so if you're here this morning and that's you, I just beg you to run to Christ. So I want you to bow your head right where you are. We're about to sing our last song. And as we do this, I just want you to spend some time praying. Maybe it's for your marriage. Maybe it's for a friend that's in a difficult marriage. Maybe it's as a single person, your pursuit of sexual purity. Maybe you gotta make some tough decisions based off of the word of God today. Whatever it is that God's asking you to do to respond to his word, I pray that you would do that this morning. So Father, that's our prayer. God, your word is so good. God, nothing you say in your word is to take something from us, but to give us life. And so Lord, I pray that we would see your word as good and God is life-giving. And God, you would lead us to take the steps that you've called us to take. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Would you stand and sing?